The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what, can, what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Father, we come from a lot of different places tonight. Some of us are full of doubt. We used to believe, um, now we're not so sure, and so we come here tonight and it feels a little awkward, and we're not even sure if we should be here. Um, others of us, we feel like a failure because we continue to struggle with the same things over and over and over again. Father, for others, you feel distant um, we're wondering if you're still there and if you still care. Father, there are others still in this room that have big decisions to make. Um, and they need to trust you. And we ask that you would come and supernaturally uh, come into this place through your spirit and minister to all of our hearts and all of our different needs. Father, would you settle us now? Would you help us to sense that and to really believe, because you tell us this is true, that we're really all the same, um, that we're all a bigger mess than we want to admit, and we all need you and need to be rescued from our sin. Father, show us Jesus in the midst of this very difficult passage. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Um, you have the text printed for you. Exodus chapter 11 is where we are in our study of Exodus this semester. And this is the passage called the Passover, as it's commonly known. Um, it's an old poem, but it was a poem by Wilbur Rees. And the title of the poem is $3 Worth of God, Please. Here's a couple of lines from the poem. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, 
but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I want the warmth of the womb, but not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. You ever feel that way? Can you relate to that? I know I can relate to it. If we're honest, I think we all can relate to it. We all kind of think that way. We want just enough of God, but not too much. $3 worth of God, please. But then we come to a passage like this. And if you were reading closely, it should make you shudder. We come to a passage like this in Exodus chapter 12, and we get a whole lot more than $3 worth of God. We get challenge. We get bigness. We get mystery. We get judgment. We get unexpected things. In Exodus chapter 12, you don't get $3 worth of God. You get a whole lot more. This semester, we've been studying the book of Exodus through a series called The Story of Salvation. We are looking at this semester the story of salvation through the book of Exodus. And what we have seen is that Exodus takes words like forgiveness, deliverance, words like uh, disobedience and rebellion and sin and brings them to life by putting them in story form. Well, we continue our study tonight and we see that the story of salvation involves judgment. And tonight what we see is that this passage takes the word judgment and it brings it to life and puts it in story form in order to make it real to our hearts. I want to be honest with you. This has been a hard passage for me. It's been a hard day as I've wrestled with it and thought about it, about the passage. It's tough. It's sobering. And I say that because I don't want you tonight to gloss over it. Some of you, maybe not all of you, but some of you have heard this story so many times you can't even count. And it's easy to gloss over, but think about this with me. God comes and kills the firstborn of every Egyptian. And not only that, he says, I'm going to kill the firstborn of every Israelite unless I pass over and I see blood on your doorpost from a lamb. We're way too familiar with this story, way too familiar, because if we're honest, it's deeply disturbing, and it demands explanation, and that's exactly, by God's grace, what I hope to do tonight. Really, what we're going to try to do is get at the meaning of this passage called the Passover. I hope that we walk away, we have a better understanding of what it's all about. In order to do that, to get at the meaning, we need to look at four things. The firstborn, the blood, if you see an outline printed for you on your announcement sheet, 
the lamb. And thirdly and finally, we'll look at the meal. Let's look at number one. The firstborn. If you've been coming this semester, maybe you kind of get to, you heard the passage read and you're like, I know what's going on here. (laughs) This is a good old fashioned standoff. Not the battle of the bands. This is the battle of the firstborns. Because you're thinking, remember Exodus chapter one, Pharaoh was angry because God's people, the Israelites had gotten too big and too powerful. And so what did he command? Remember, he said, I want all the Israelites firstborn to be executed by throwing them into the Nile. And then we get to this passage, and maybe you're thinking, now it's God's turn. God wants revenge. That's not what's happening in this passage. This is not a contest of the firstborns. And this might sound strange to us. In 2013, but we actually need to look a little bit deeper into the ancient Near Eastern culture in order to understand exactly what's going on. And here's what we need to understand is that the firstborn male in every household was the representative for the family. We think about that, and that's hard for us to get our minds around because we live in a very individualistic society, but back then, that's not the way it was. It was very family-oriented and very community-oriented, and what we learn is that the firstborn was actually the benefactor for the family. The way the families would keep their social status and their financial status was through the firstborn. That's how important it was. And when a parent would die, their inheritance wasn't just divided up equally among all the family members. You know what happened? The entire estate went to who? Went to the firstborn. Because they were representative of the family. And here's the point. God is saying through this unmistakably that there is a debt that hangs over every family on the face of the earth. And your firstborn is liable, is responsible for the way in which you live. Is liable for the way in which your family has lived. And everyone in this time in which this was written would have understood that very clearly okay that's the first piece of the puzzle that we need to put into place in order to understand this passage number one we need to understand the importance of the firstborn secondly what's up with the blood let's look at the blood and we didn't read this because it would have been a long passage but look at number uh, verse 23 with me if you have your bible you can flip over there This ought to make us shudder. The destroyer, yes, you heard that right. (laughs) The destroyer is coming to every house in Egypt. Every Egyptian house and every Israelite house. Blood is going to be spilt. Think about that. Every house, there will be the spilling of blood. And your firstborn will die unless you put blood from a lamb on the top of your doorpost. And the question is why? 
Well, here's what I want us to see. There's actually a couple things, and here's the first. Is that this plague, the tenth plague, was a plague for everybody. It wasn't just for the Egyptians. And here's what we learn about God's wrath through this. Friends, God's wrath is no respecters of persons. It does not discriminate. God's wrath is a hundred percent and completely just. And if you are in debt to him, you will not escape judgment. God, the God of Israel comes, and here's basically what he's saying. Don't go outside. Yes, I know that they're the oppressor. They've treated you cruelly and enslaved you for years. And I know that you're the ones being uh, uh, oppressed. But when it comes to my judgment, no one can stand. No one. When it comes to my judgment, no one can stand, and you are no better. you got to get this. This is what he's telling the Israelites. You're no better than those that you despise, that hold you captive and enslave you in chains. Whoa. That's challenging. That is shocking. And that's not what we want to hear tonight. I get that. It's not really what I want to say. (laughs) That is not something that we like to hear, but here's what I want you to get is please understand that you've got to get that in order for you to really understand Christianity. In order for you to really understand the gospel, it is critical. The admission... That there is something deep and profound here. And it's this. Every single one of us stand before God with a debt that has to be paid. You owe him. And I owe him. And some of you might say, well, I don't like to think of it that way. In fact, I don't like it. I'm just going to live by my own standards. Okay. If that's where you are tonight, go here with me. Maybe you say, I'm going to live by my own standards. Okay, well, pretend we were to put an invisible tape recorder around your neck from this day forward to the day you die. And that invisible tape recorder hanging around your neck would record... Everything that you, and the way that you judge people in your mind and in in your heart according to your standards all the way to the day you die. And then on the last day of your life, we were to play that tape back to you to see how you measured up to your own standards. Friends, you wouldn't have a prayer. I wouldn't have a prayer. None of us can even live up to our own standards. And you say, well, okay, but why the blood? Can't God just forgive and get over it and move on? No, he can't. Because there has to be payment. Because there is a debt 
that needs to be covered. And we all know this, don't we? Deep down in your soul, you know this to be true. Think about this scenario with me. If you are wronged by someone, I mean deeply wronged by another person, at that moment there is a debt put in place, isn't there? And at that moment you have two choices of how you're going to pay down that debt. You can either make the other person pay down the debt and eventually be reconciled and restore the relationship, and you know how that goes. If you make the other person pay, you give them the cold shoulder. You exclude them from your group and no longer invite them to do things with you. You slash and dice up their reputation in front of others. Or you hold it over them, always reminding them, remember what you did to me? And if you do that, if you make someone else pay down the debt, you know what the Bible says? It says that you will dehumanize yourself. Because the bitterness and the resentment will overtake you and make you less than human, and it will end up destroying you. So that's one way. If there's a debt in place, you can make someone else pay, and you know what that's like. You've had it done to you, and you've probably done it to others. Or there's another option. You can absorb the debt yourself. Or you can actually forgive. But make no mistake, forgiveness is costly, isn't it? Because when you want to slice up their reputation, you don't. And when you want to hurt them, you don't. And when you want to make them pay, you don't. And when you want to think hateful thoughts and you start going down that road, you stop yourself. And here's what happens. You start to realize that the anger in your heart starts to subside. Why? Because you're paying the debt down. And here's my point. Everyone in this room knows that the debt has to be paid and that someone has to pay it. We know that deep down in our hearts. And if we know that as human beings who have a fuzzy sense of justice, how much more does God know that? And what I hope it's starting to come together. Are you starting to see the pieces of the puzzle fit into place? Because now it makes sense, doesn't it? Why God is going to every house to kill the firstborn unless they have blood over it. Do you see what's happening? God is calling in the debt. God is calling in the debt that was created and that is in place because of the sin of these families. And friends... There is no restoring a relationship with God unless the debt of your sin is paid. And some of you are way too comfortable with that. Way too comfortable with what was just said. Seriously. 
because of your sin, there is a debt that is to be paid that you owe. And my question for all of us tonight is, have you come to grips with that? You see, friends, Christianity is not, it does not begin with moral superiority. Christianity begins by admitting this and saying that because of our sin, there is a debt that is owed God and he has every right to call in that debt. And when he calls it in, the debt is eternal death. I told you this was a tough passage. And before you get up and walk out, please hang with me. Because here's what we need to understand about the gospel. The gospel is good news. But in order to understand and really grasp the good news, you've got to understand the bad news. And that's what we've just talked about. And so number three, let's turn to the good news. The lamb. What's the deal with the lamb? The Israelites were instructed to put the lamb on the doorpost. And in doing so, you see in verse 13, God would pass over them and they would be saved. And some of you are thinking right now, you've got to be kidding me. I don't understand Christianity. That's nonsense. You mean to tell me that the destroyer is going to come and the most powerful military on the face of the earth at that moment, which was the Egyptians, they're not going to be able to handle it. But this weak, soft, fluffy little lamb is going to protect these people. That's crazy. But what do we learn from that? Friends, that teaches us something very, very important about the gospel and about who God is and about the true nature of Christianity. And it's this. God accepts substitutes. God accepts substitutes. This little lamb dies in the place of the firstborn. The lamb got what the son deserved. The lamb got what the entire family deserved. And the Jewish people that night did not survive because they were good enough. They did not survive because of their moral record or because they, had favor, they were in favor with God. They had a substitute. They were covered in the blood of the lamb. And I don't know about you, but that is the best news in the world. Because think about your own life. Here's what it means. The Israelites were not saved. And we're not saved. Because we know our Bible better. Or because we come to RUF every week. Or because we've avoided so far in college those really bad college sins, whatever they are. That's not what saves us. You're saved, and they were saved because they were covered in the blood. Let me illustrate. Let's say we were there that night. Let's say you were there. And after all of this goes down with the Passover, and you're, you hear the Egyptians and their families wailing, Because they've lost their firstborn. 
and you walk out into the street, out the front door of your house, and you're standing in the street, and you look to the left, and right across the street from you to the left, you see your neighbor, and he's a thief. You know he's a thief. You know he's crooked because you've been around him, but he's alive, and his family's been spared. Why? Because the blood of the lamb was on the doorpost. And then you look to your right, and three doors down is the neighbor that you respect more than anybody in the world, the most godly person that you know. He prays, he reads his Bible, he works hard, he takes care of his family, and he's alive. And he's alive because of the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And it's in that moment as you're standing in the street and you're, healing, and you're hearing the wailing of the Egyptians and their families and you're hearing that and it dawns on you that everyone, that is what they deserved. Everyone deserved to be struck down. But you are alive because of a substitute. Because you're covered in the blood. Friends, we learned something crucial. And you've heard me say this. This is a Tim Keller quote. Can't be said any better. But it is huge when you think about the Christian life. And what we see in this story, it's not the quality of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. It's not the quality. If it were about the quality, we're done. Because none of us could stand. And just think about your own life. Some days that quality is great, and some days it's like a flickering flame, barely alive, like an ember that feels like it's going out. That's not what saves you. It's Jesus and his blood, the object of your faith, that saves you. And that leads us to our last point, the meal. Look at verse 14. We didn't read it, but look down one verse if you have your Bible. The Israelites were told to remember this event and to celebrate it every year with this annual feast called the Passover. And God wanted them to remember it because he wanted them to know that life comes through death. Fast forward with me, and you can even turn there if you would like. You don't have to. To Luke chapter 22, verses 7 and following. If not, at least write it down. And when we get to Luke chapter 22, verse 7 and following, we see the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's Passover. And it's the night that he is going to be betrayed, and he's sharing this Passover meal with his disciples. But here's the thing. The Passover, at the Passover feast, it involved three things. Bread, wine, and a lamb. But if you look at chapter 22, when Jesus is having the Passover, the lamb is not mentioned anywhere in that passage. You see, the lamb wasn't on the table. The lamb was actually at the table 
And by removing the lamb from the table, here's what Jesus was saying, that I'm the lamb, and it's through my death, my death is the pinnacle of all of human history, and it is what everything in the Old Testament has been pushing towards and moving towards. And Jesus, on that night, was saying that you still have a debt that needs to be paid, and tonight I'm going to remove it. And you know how God removes the debt? By killing his firstborn. He removes the debt by shedding the blood of his firstborn, Jesus. I don't know how to say this, but I love you, and I'm going to say it. But you're guilty tonight. And I'm guilty tonight. All of us. We have a sentence of death that is hanging around our neck. And the sentence demands death and nothing less. We need a substitute. Desperately. This weekend, some of you are going to get so drunk that you won't be able to drive home and you're going to end up in someone else's bed on Sunday morning. And you're going to need a substitute. Some of you are bored to death with Jesus. And you want it back. You want the love that you had your freshman year You want it to come back because your freshman year, you blew it. And you did things that you never thought you would do and things that you deeply regret and you knew you needed a substitute. You knew you needed Jesus. And you're bored with Jesus because you've forgotten that right now, at this very moment, in the pews, that you need a substitute. Friends, we need a substitute. You need a substitute for the mission trip that you took this summer and for the motives that actually encouraged you to go on that trip. You need a substitute for the best day spiritually that you've ever had and the best devotion that you've ever had. And can I be honest with you? I need a substitute for this sermon. You know why? Because I'm more concerned with you thinking that the sermon was good than walking out of here loving Jesus more. How's that for honesty? You see, I need a substitute too. And here's the question. What are we going to do with our guilt? What are you going to do with your guilt? Are we going to do the same thing that we're always tempted to do and run out of here and try to clean ourselves up and try more self-help stuff and try to grit our teeth and say, I think I can, I can do better, I know I can do better. Are we going to leave here and just get spiritually busy and start going to more Bible studies and more campus ministries? Or... Will you let Jesus be your substitute? 
Will you come to Jesus and stand under the blood of the Lamb? The perfect, spotless blood of the Lamb. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, we, we need you. And I pray that you would convince us of how desperately we need you. That we would take all of our shame and our guilt that we're experiencing in this room, and there's lots of it, even this week. And would you show us that even though that's hard and that's bad news, that the good news is greater and that your love for us and your grace is greater than we could imagine. Instead of trying to help ourselves, would you push us to you? And may we stand under the blood of the perfect spotless lamb. In Jesus' name we pray.